You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. London has stood with Kyiv since day one. From the first seconds and minutes of the full-scale war, Great Britain, you extended your helping hand when the world had not yet come to understand how to react. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine visits the UK. Australia's new government might actually be serious about environmental protection and which deranged and or crooked political potentate would you most want to see a musical about? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Oscar Huadiola-Rivera will discuss all the day's big stories and our On This Day historical feature will consider the disappearance of the greatest racehorse of an era. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by the writer and broadcaster Yasmin Abdul-Majid and by Oscar Huadiola-Rivera, Professor of International Law and International Affairs at Birkbeck College. Hello to you both. Hello. Lovely to be here. It occurred to me that this is the panel, this grouping here, which not only takes me the longest to type both names into the script, (laughs) but but also, and I mean no uh, disservice to our other daily regulars, this is our best-dressed panel, I think, as well. Well, look at you. Yes, I mean, this combination, Oscar. The colours, yes. Uh, and and your combination, which the listeners cannot see, Yasmin, sadly, of the of the cowboy boots and the and the Sudanese headgear there. Listen, I, I mean, I like to combine cultures in my <laughs> you know in my sartorial choices as much as anything else. Um, you have both been uh, on your travels recently, uh, Oscar. The the Kolkata Literary Festival. That's correct. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, it's been very very uh, beautiful to be back on the literary circuit. All the festivals are coming back in person. This one was. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and Yasmin, you've been failing to avoid our fellow Australians in <laughs> Lithuania and Sweden. Yeah, it is amazing that you can find an Australian with the accent <laughs> in any part of the world that you travel to. So I was in Vilnius uh, for about a month in December and then try- attempted to see the Northern Lights up in Sweden and a nice smudge in the sky there uh, before I came back to sunny London. Well, let's start the show proper with today's surprise visitor to London, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky making only his second foray overseas since Russia attacked his country nearly one year ago. President Zelensky met King Charles III at Buckingham Palace and before that spoke to a joint session of Parliament at Westminster Hall, where he presented a gift to common speaker Lindsay Hoyle. I will explain. Is the helmet of a real Ukrainian pilot. He is one of our most successful Aces, and he's one of our kings. And the writing on the helmet reads, we have freedom, give us wings to protect it. I trust, I trust this symbol will help us for our next coalition, coalition of the planes, and I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine, wings for freedom. 
President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine speaking to Parliament here in London earlier today. Um, Oscar, first of all, not a lot of subtext to this speech by President Zelensky. He wants planes. Uh, not a, not subtlety there. In fact, he's written on the tin or whatever metal the helmet is uh, uh, made of. Uh, this is very clearly an attempt to um, uh, ask the UK to serve as mediator vis-a-vis the United States and NATO for uh, those F-16 uh, uh, jets. Mm. Uh, now, that's, uh, that's a significant step. I mean, it was, as we all know, very controversial and difficult for countries to reach a decision to provide uh, tanks. Mm-hmm. But planes is a whole other ballgame because, of course, as everybody knows, the minute you have planes uh, on the air, you also have to protect them against uh, anti-air uh, batteries, uh, included those within Russian territory. And that, of course, uh, would change uh, uh, the course of the war. Um, it's he, He's been very skillful throughout, uh, Yasmin, in trimming his rhetoric to the audience he's speaking to. He, I mean, he's a, he's a showman by trade. He knows how uh, to get a crowd on side. But he, he, it would have been an interesting decision. I wonder how far, how difficult it was to come to, whether or not to give the big shout out to Boris Johnson or not. Um, he did. And obviously, Boris Johnson is not the person he most needs to impress now. But... Do you think that credit is due to Boris Johnson, that he actually was that important in the early days of the war? It's so interesting to me mm. how, you know, to sort of live through this moment and and also to think about how this story is going to be told, right? Because Boris Johnson, so when I was in Vilnius um, late last year, Boris Johnson was the name that people, Ukrainians themselves mm. and Lithuanians actually would say, you know, we are so thankful to Boris Johnson and the UK for supporting. And so people in people's mind, it wasn't only just the UK, it was Boris specifically. And he's been very, Boris Johnson has been sort of canny in positioning himself in this sort of wartime leadership role, even though, you know, domestically he was going through so much. And and in the end, you know, he's, he was sort of left it disgraced domestically, internationally, and certainly to Ukraine, he's still an ally that they feel they can depend on. And what's also very interesting, Zelensky was meant, I think, to travel to the EU first. In fact, you know, the the trip to Brussels, I think, was pitched as, you know, his um, was going to be his second trip overseas since the war began. But actually, he stopped here in London first. And so this, the UK's trip became this very important trip. And I think, you know, some in the EU are a bit miffed by this Mm. snub. But actually, from the UK's perspective, especially Boris Johnson, because now Boris Johnson himself has come out and said, we need to give the Ukraine planes, you know, they see that he's an ally within the UK parliament. Now, whether or not that will translate into actual results, um, into planes, is is much more up for debate. Yeah, Boris Johnson's uh, statement uh, was uh, fairly unmistakably prime ministerial um, in terms of what he thinks uh, Ukraine should get. Um, The best single use for any of these items, he said, referring to the Challenger tanks and the Typhoon jets, uh, is to deploy them now for the protection of Ukrainians, not least that because that is how we guarantee our own long-term security. I mean, that's a a Churchillian flourish uh, at the end right there. But I was wondering, Oscar, as well, what you made of the importance of the symbolism of this visit, not just speaking to the combined Houses of Parliament uh, in Westminster Hall, but also meeting uh, the king. He's the first Ukrainian president ever ever to meet the British head of state. Are things like that still important in uh, establishing that, you know, Zelensky is on 
well, what he would certainly perceive as the right side of history, and he's trying to enlist people behind him. Well, as you pointed out, uh, Andrew Zelensky is a very cunning showbiz man, and he knows that the message, I mean, the message is not intended for the UK. Again, mm. as mm. pointed out before, this is a message intended to the Biden administration, uh, because the red line on combat jets was uh, drawn by uh, uh, Biden. And uh, why the UK? Because uh, for uh, uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians, uh, the UK might still carry some traction vis-a-vis the US. This is about those F-16 combat jets. It's not about the typhoons. It's not about the F-35s. We all know those are complicated and would not make the necessary Mm. difference. This is about the US. And that's where this Mm. gets really troubling and, and controversial, because, of course, Biden will have I mean, if, if the, the effectiveness of this symbolism would be for that red line to be moved, just as the red line on mm-hmm. tanks was moved. But this is a very, very different uh, uh, set of circumstances. Let us re- remember, of course, that in two years' time, Biden or somebody from the Democratic Party is going to, to, be, to, go, to go through uh, presidential elections. So uh, this decision will have to be taken before that. You know, when the, when the time uh, for elections in the U.S. comes, uh, the idea that uh, the U.S. will engage even further in, in war in Ukraine is perhaps much more difficult. So this this is not just symbolic. This is a clear message uh, to the US and to NATO. Well, there is some talk that Zelensky is going to be continuing to Paris and or Brussels, and we will, of course, uh, follow his peregrinations as they proceed. But let's move on for now uh, to Australia. And if newish Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was seeking an opportunity to signal his seriousness on environmental protection, he could have been presented with no greater gift. A proposal for an open-cut coal mine 10 kilometres from the colossal natural treasure of the Great Barrier Reef from a company owned by bumptious billionaire and occasional politician Clive Palmer, possibly best imagined as a sort of Donald Trump without the charm or humility. While state governments in Australia have kiboshed mining projects before, this is the first ever such intervention by Australia's federal government. Uh, Yasmin, does the Queenslander at the table welcome this news? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is. it is pretty... It's fantastic, you know, to to see this coming from the federal environmental minister, um, I think Tanya Plibersek. Mm-hmm. And also, so even though this is, I think, the second time ever any coal project has been rejected by the federal government, there was one, there was a, a Shoalwater Bay coal terminal rejected in 2008. This is the first time any project has been rejected, coal project, on environmental grounds. And that's a big shift for Australia. Mm. That Because, you know, time and time again, there has been, you know, the, the fossil fuel lobby in Australia is incredibly strong for folks who've kind of followed, you know, various prime ministers over the years have been toppled by the issue of climate change and so on, whether it's Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard with the carbon tax. And Tony Abbott sort of brought in a much more watered down version of this. So for this Labour government to sort of stand up and say, this is not happening on environmental grounds, I think is, I mean, it's great, but it's also kind of depressing, frankly, (laughs) that it's taken us, it's 2023 and and this is happening. And, you know, I was kind of looking at at some of the the reports from, you know, the various experts, scientific committees and so on. And, you know, Clive Palmer has been trying to get this over the line for a very long time. And it was even, you know, I think when it went out last year, they sort of, they put an appeal 
And the the environmental minister had to sort of say, you know, we're going to allow a a number, 10 days or so of responses from the community. And this is really important. The community themselves like flooded um, the the government body with responses against this coal mine, which tells you something very important because central Queensland is an area of... Like, I've worked in a coal mine in central Mm. Queensland. My first job, embarrassingly, (laughs) as a 17-year-old, was in a coal mine in this very region. So it's an area that's very dependent on coal. So to have people from this very region push back and say, no more, we want to protect the barrier reef, we want to protect the environment, especially from a a huge open-cut coal mine, I think is some, some... wonderfully heartwarming progress. Uh, I do have to ask, as a follow-up, Yasmin, I'm not aware that so far there has been a direct response to this knockback by Clive Palmer, who I think we can characterise as an an adoptive Queenslander, although he has adopted (laughs) Queensland rather than necessarily the other way around. Um, Where would you estimate the equanimity with which he's likely to receive this news? To give to give listeners a bit of a sense, <laughs> Clive Palmer, I think, you know, he's the kind of person that will buy up every billboard in the city or in the, you know, in the state to sort of, and in bright red lettering sort of say, we want X, Y, Z, and we must make it happen. There's no subtlety. Um, and and I think there will be pushback. I mean, whether or not, I don't even, I don't think it's possible for anything to happen, whether or not he sort of tries to find some other way of going about doing it. I just don't think the appetite is there anymore. I mean, the thing is, in fairness to Clive Palmer, if I was a billionaire, buying every billboard <laughs> in the state every time I was upset about something is totally something I it's would do. It's yeah, a flex. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but Oscar, should should the world welcome this as an example, this, this gesture suggesting that really coal mining is not a thing we should be doing much more of if we can possibly avoid it. Yes, the world will should welcome uh, these moves by Australia. It's also good business, as uh, uh, mm. the Australian uh, Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen put it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Europe is uh, uh, energy-hungry and capital-rich, mm. and Australia is uh, energy-rich and uh, capital-hungry. So there is uh, a deal to be, to be made there. It would, of course, also place Australia in a much better footing. It is still the case that uh, fossil fuel exports, particularly coal from uh, Australia, mean that mean that uh, Australia Australia's um, climate um, uh, uh, footprint uh, is bigger abroad than it is. Uh, it, it remains uh, the world's the second largest Correct. coal exporter. So uh, there is still a long way to go. But uh, uh, insofar as uh, business and uh, uh, climate uh, is concerned. And the world should welcome this move. I mean, Yasmin, I, I had myself noted that comment by uh, Chris Bowen, the mm. Minister for Climate Change and Energy. There's, there's something to that, though, isn't there? That I mean, it, it, it's possibly a poor reflection on human nature, but that is the best chance for these concerns getting resolved is when people figure out how to make money out of clean energy. And Australia, as Bowen apprehends, is admirably uh, positioned to capitalise on those solar power, hydropower, wind power, and plus all the stuff like, you know, lithium, cobalt, tantalum, mm-hmm. tungsten that you need to build clean energy stuff. Exactly. I mean, so I, I graduated from mechanical engineering and I'm showing my, in 2011. And in 2011, Australia was in a position to be completely like energy to have fully renewable domestic energy and still continue to export. So it's 
you know, people have known for a long time that mm. this is, but at the time, there was A, no appetite and B, no investment really ta- in, in clean energy. It really does. Australia is a continent that has such capacity for renewable, you know, I think they use the phrase like a uh, renewable energy superpower. And that, and it, and it also has, I think, you know, the technical ability to do so. And And to consider, you know, the massive reserves of cobalt and lithium in particular, like cobalt mining in the Congo is not is not done, you know, to a high health and safety standard. And lithium is in all of our batteries. And, you know, and so I think the capacity for Australia to really shift and in 10, 20 years time be completely divest from fossil fuels, I think is there for people to take. That opportunity is there for the taking. So it'll be fascinating to see what the Labour government can do um, at this point in time to make that happen. And just a final thought on this one, Oscar. Do you you perceive Australia making a renewed effort with Europe here after the the various ructions of the Morrison years? Obviously, we've just had the Foreign Minister, uh, Senator Penny Wong, visiting the UK uh, and Europe. Um, Anthony Albanese, as he may have mentioned once or twice during the election campaign, is an (laughs) Italian-Australian. More than twice, you might remember. Uh, these moves will also be welcomed by uh, the European Union, if memory serves me well. There is still you know, negotiations on that very important treaty for Australia are still ongoing. And uh, part of the problem had been precisely Australia's uh, uh, reluctant uh, uh, position in, in terms of uh, climate change. So, of course, this is going to help uh, with uh, the European Union. It is There is an additional uh, uh, point to be made in this respect, and it has to do with the fact that geopolitically speaking, it will also be uh, very well received by Europe and uh, the United States for, for instance, some of the refinement of lithium to uh, uh, veer away from China uh, into Australia. And in fact, uh, the Australians have been quite explicit in that respect. So on those uh, two counts, uh, this is going to be good news uh, for Australia vis-a-vis the European Union. Well, let's look now at recent local elections in Ecuador. And I promise this item picks up steam shortly. While it is traditional in many jurisdictions for voters to enjoy local elections as a means and an excuse to give the national government of the day a cautionary kicking, This one went notably badly for Ecuador's centre-rightish president Guillermo Lasso and all for which he stands. Eight constitutional reforms he proposed were shot down and dozens of mayoral offices and nine provinces were won by the citizen revolution movement of former president Rafael Correa, who gave vent to his joy in song. Uh, Rafael Correa, former president of Ecuador, who's clearly applied the close enough for rock and roll dictum to tuning his guitar there. Um, but, but Oscar, is, the, is this really a vote for him as such? He is, we should stress, in somewhat straitened circumstances, currently in exile in Belgium trying to stay out of jail. Well, the uh, consensus within Ecuador is that uh, Correa was persecuted and uh, lawfare was used against him uh, before and after the presidential elections. And although Correa still has, uh, 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 you know, a, a certain uh, uh, 
percentage of the population to uh, to be won over uh, towards him, it is clear that this is uh, a major step uh, in his favor. And it's a, it's a tremendous, not just a tremendous defeat for, for Lasso. I mean, he has been uh, on the back end of uh, serious disruption by uh, the indigenous uh, movement. And as we all know, the indigenous movement in Ecuador is particularly powerful. Mm. I mean, it deposed uh, uh, seven or eight presidents uh, uh, in uh, the last uh, two or three decades uh, alone. Uh, so in this, in, there was a, a sector of the indigenous movement that was uh, not in good uh, terms with uh, Korea. So this, this is an important change. Uh, also, in terms uh, of the hemisphere, of the Western hemisphere as a, as a whole, this confirms what we have been saying uh, here for a while. We are witnessing the second pink wave in uh, in the Americas. Uh, and this one is different from, from the one before. Uh, this is not just being led by uh, what some people might call your usual uh, populist. This, this one is uh, being won against the backdrop of uh, uh, far-right and right-wing uh, uh, you know, uh, victories uh, in the last uh, uh, six or ten years. This is very important. This is crucial for uh, uh, the continent and clearly uh, is a change of direction for Ecuador. I mean, do you see it in, in those terms, Yasmin? I mean, uh, President Lasso, in my admittedly rudimentary understanding of Ecuadorian politics, is, is not Jair Bolsonaro. He's, he's not one of your proper fire-breathing, tub-thumping, bellicose nationalist types. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading, as I was reading the reports on this, something that struck me was that, you know, he actually accepted the results. You know, <laughs> you know th- that, and the fact that that, to me, was something that was shocking was in itself a concerning reaction. But I I do think it is worth us, you know, connecting the dots in some way, even if it is not just these hard right nationalists that seem to have no regard for the rule of law. The fact that there are, you know, what it means is that left wing and alternative um, or progressive movements or indigenous movements can also kind of look to what else is happening around the world. And that is how you get a sort of more international pushback, I think, against, you know, what we've seen over the last six to 10 years. And so even though, you know, Lasso might not be the exact carbon copy, I think the fact that we are sort of seeing this can be part of a broader trend. And especially, I think, in a place like Ecuador, where... You know, things have been tough. And I mean, I think last year they had the the sort of homicide rate was incredibly high and so on and continued to be. I think that the fact that people are sort of engaging in a way, um, I I don't know, for me, it's a hopeful. I'm looking for any bit of optimism I can, really. (laughs) Um, Oscar, I want to come back to what you were saying about the the Pink Tide 2.0 thing. Do you, has it evolved though? Because, and stop me if this is too much of a reach, because the the one constant between the two is, of course, Lula, recently re-elected president of Brazil. But Lula, unlike a lot of that first wave, when you might think of someone like Chavez, Morales, etc., is essentially a pragmatist. For all that he is a, a socialist by upbringing and by doctrine, it, in the manner of quite frequently, actually, former trades unionists turned politicians, he's a dealmaker. He wants to get things done. Do you, do you see more of that um, in, I guess, the newer wave when we might think of Boric in Chile, Petro in Colombia? That's the big difference. That's the one thing I was referring to. Uh, what you see, whether it is AMLO or Boric or mm. Petro and indeed Lula, these are negotiators. These are politicians with uh, a very long experience 
of negotiating. Uh, and that makes them much more interesting politicians than uh, those who led the previous uh, pink wave. It is also the case that the politics of the whole hemisphere have changed. Let me put it very, very uh, provocatively by saying that uh, nowadays uh, the uh, uh, biggest threat to uh, uh, security in the Western Hemisphere comes from subversion, but not from left-wing subversion, but for mm. far-right and right-wing subversion. And this is also the case in the United States. Mm. And that makes a huge difference because uh, uh, you, ha you, have, you have a lot of people in Washington who will, perhaps not in public, but uh, uh, personally, privately, will recognize that uh, uh, being the case. And uh, this is, of course, the kind of, they're also referring to the kind of people who would support either Trump or Ron DeSantis Uh, uh, mm -hmm. if they run, when they run in 2024. So this is now, there is now a sort of hemispheric con consensus emerging, which uh, adds uh, an interesting twist to the more pragmatic, uh, better negotiating skills uh, that uh, Lula and or Petro or AMLO bring to the table. Uh, and Yasmin, I just want to pick up finally on what you were saying about the the organization of indigenous movements and whether or not there's anything they can learn from each other. And obviously questions of this sort are going to be a dominant theme in our mutual homeland this year with Albanese's plans for a referendum on a, an indigenous voice to parliament. Are there actually any exportable lessons from any of these situations or are they all so different as to, well, to, to, to render any such ideas inoperable? Yeah, it's so interesting actually observing from the outside the conversation and and the the agony really in in the Australian context um, when it comes to so the indigenous at the moment there is there will be a referendum this year in Australia around this idea of the voice an indigenous voice in Parliament and there's a lot of tension within the indigenous communities themselves around you know what that actually means some people wanting treaty first mm -hmm. and so on we just saw very recently I think this week Senator Lydia Thorpe who was with the Greens actually go independent because she sort of said that, you know, she wanted treaty first over this, the voice, because the voice didn't, you know, it wasn't clear what they were actually voting for, um, what the referendum would be about. And therefore, you know, she said she's in the parliament for the idea of black sovereignty. Now, all of that to say, you know, these are very, as you say, contextual, very about what's going on in Australia with the history of Australia. However, I do think that First Nations people do look to what's happening in other mm. societies. And, you know, if we think back to, you know, the, the fights for independence against um, Western European uh, colonization in the 50s and so on, a lot of these countries, you know, they would have conferences and they would come together and exchange ideas. Some of the most interesting writing about anti-imperialism and, and anti-colonialism came from people in different societies sort of thinking about these things together. And, and although all of their contexts have differences, I think generally the sorts of things they're trying to push against are structural. And that is the thing that they can really you know, co connect on. Just, just to add to that very quickly, they may also share a, a historical past. For all their differences, we now know that uh, there is enough archaeological and anthropological evidence pointing towards the commonality uh, of the, the horizontal institutions uh, put together by indigenous peoples, either in the Americas or in Oceania. And, uh, you know, for anyone who read uh, or is reading David Wengro and David Graeber's fantastic book, uh, that 
has political implications. So when indigenous peoples think about how to fight nowadays, they hark back to that l long past. And there they have a very, very powerful uh, bag of tools. Mm. So they use them together. Well, let's move along to something completely different. Um, where politically themed musicals in arguably dubious taste are concerned. That ship sailed some while ago when Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber demonstrated that it was possible to have a vast mainstream hit with a song and dance production about an Argentinian fascist and his mad wife. So we should probably be more resigned than scandalised or even surprised at the news that London will shortly be treated to an eponymous musical about the former Italian Prime Minister. Silvio Berlusconi, and that a Broadway debut looms for Here Lies Love, a musical about former Filipino first lady and legendary shoe hoarder Imelda Marcos. Here is first an excerpt from Here Lies Love. And I will now be needing the studio mallet. Yeah, you knew, you knew all the words yeah. to that song. <laughs> I, I, I've, I, I've wanted a gong in here for you're, years. You're, I, I, you were lip syncing. I, I, I was thinking of it as a device for mostly keeping boring guests on their toes. <laughs> obviously, obviously, wouldn't be a problem with either of you. Um, first of all, let let us consider Berlusconi the musical, or indeed Imelda Marcos the musical. Uh, Oscar, I will ask you first: How many wild horses would be needed to drag you to either? <laughs> well, actually, I have a surprise for you. No. I did go to you I don't know if you remember you, you, have you starred in a production <laughs> of a, you played Juan Perón I, I did and, and I, I played I played Che in, in film actually but uh, <laughs> but I did attend I did attend uh, Asian Dove Foundation's uh, musical based the, on the Colonel Gaddafi, Gaddafi. Yep. you remember that yep. one and it was actually quite good so <laughs> so uh, that, that so guilty as charged but uh, uh but, uh, uh, you know, uh, Berlusconi, no, never. I mean, Paolo Sorrentino did a very good job in film with Giulio Andreotti. Uh, uh, having said that, the only way a musical uh, uh, works is if you have uh, a really ridiculously bombastic figure. Mm. And, yeah, perhaps that's what they're going for. See, I, I would take issue with the whole premise that a musical can work. I mean, e even, e even, even, even an <laughs> exceptional musical, even a musical at the very top of musicals is, is going to be merely tolerable by, I'm, I'm by, there with by, by any, I'm there with any normal standard. I am standard. in this room, in this studio, defending the musical's corner, okay? We Don't Talk About Bruno is a Grammy-winning... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they could they, repurpose it in the in the parliament. They can be like, we don't talk about Boris. No, no. My eight-year-old <laughs> loves it, and I love that she loves it, but they murdered Garcia Marquez. <laughs> um, is, there, is there a vaguely serious concern? I will ask you, Yasmin, that if you turn these people into, you know, comic opera figures, that you, you kind of give them a bit of a get-out clause, don't you? Because someone like Berlusconi plays into that. He he's, he he's all in on the idea that he's ridiculous and he's buffoonish, but he doesn't care. Yeah, and I do think, you know, and Oscar, you just made this point, the idea of turning somebody who has done 
despicable things or things that are beyond the pale or, you know, and turning them into something, A, that people sort of laugh along and sing along to, and therefore it becomes a story and an entertainment rather than connected to actual real politics and and something that's real. I think there is, you know, as much as I want to... I mean, the, the other thought that comes to mind is Alexander Hamilton. I mean, I love Hamilton the musical. But, you know, quite a lot of the critique was around turning somebody, you know, turning a group of people who are slave owners mm-hmm. or who were slave owners into you know, sanitizing them and their stories and, and their impact and so on. So I do think it's a double-edged sword. We did want to ask, uh, and I'll ask you first, Oscar, are, are there any politicians about whom the musical has as yet not been made that you would like to see made and perhaps even to star in? There will be a musical about Trump, I'm sure. I wouldn't like it to happen, but I <laughs> bet probably, somebody's writing it right. He's commissioned it himself, probably. Probably. Because <laughs> um, I, I was going again, Yasmin, not for the first time, to, to amuse myself with the expense of your Queenslanderness <laughs> and suggest that maybe somebody could do one about Joe Bielke, Joe Bielke oh, Peterson, wow, but yes. I Googled it and inevitably no. someone's done it. It exists. Yeah, it's, it's already happened. It's called Joe for PM and it is. <laughs> is apparently set at a 1987 fundri- fundraiser at around the time where the idea was at large that um, Bjorki Peterson might might have a crack at the big job. What about Bob Catter? For those for listeners Oof. who don't know Bob Catter, he's a you know a sort of a Kubra hat wearing. Um, Queenslander who, you know, if you just go online and look for, you know, Bob Catter quips or sketches, you'll you'll see why he would be ripe for a musical. There, there, there would be a big number, wouldn't there, yes. about about his concern over crocodile attacks. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. Uh, pe- people, people do need to Google that clip if they haven't already. Um, I'm getting, I'm informed that there was from the studio booth that there was Tony exclamation mark a musical about no. Tony Blair which came out oh, in 2007 no. are you serious oh, yes um, I, I, this is news oh, to me there, there, yes, was, a, there was a Paul Keating musical I'm sure oh I, I haven't hallucinated yeah. that I, I didn't realise there was actually so much work for musical writers out there and, and you know musical theatre lovers here I am I'm clearly going to need to buy tickets to more musicals I have no idea why nobody has uh, written a musical about the Cuban revolution <laughs> yeah uh, well, the thing is, like, the, the Che thing got kind of taken by Evita, yeah, didn't it? But there's so much salsa there and, and is, you know, yeah. cigar-chomping revolutionaries playing baseball and dancing to salsa. There's a musical there. Well, I, I think what we have come to here is is both your next projects. I mean, Oscar, for you, <laughs> oh, the Cuban Revolution, the musical. Yasmin, for you, Bob Catter, Great. the musical. You, you are absolutely the person for the job. And can you imagine how delighted Catter himself would be think on hearing that you of all people were writing it? Do you know what? I th- I, it would definitely... Definitely be a moment, a moment to watch his reaction. Yeah. And and as we have been discussing, he does quite the reaction. He does quite the reaction. Uh, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Oscar Padiola Rivera, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, our On This Day historical series goes back 40 years to the bizarre origins of a mystery still unsolved. Warning, features Vanilla Ice. Shergar's last race was far from his best, but by September 1981, he was the kind of horse for whom fourth place in the St. Ledger counted as a disappointment. 
The Irish stallion, owned by the Aga Khan, was by this point an undisputed phenomenon. In the previous 12 months, Shergar had won the Chris Plate, the Sandown Classic, the Chester Vars, the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the Irish Derby and the Derby, the latter in a canter. After the St Ledger calamity, everything's relative, Shergar was retired to Ballymany in County Kildare to a profitable and one assumes agreeable life at stud and his place in turf legend, both doubtless deserved. But on this day 40 years ago, Shergar became the most famous racehorse on earth all over again. The hunt for the kidnapped Derby winner Shergar has moved across the Irish border to Northern Ireland. A ransom of £40,000 has been asked for, not the two million first reported. On the foggy night of February 8th, 1983, a gang of nine armed men pitched up at Ballymany and instructed the head groom, Jim Fitzgerald, to load Shergar into a horse box. Fitzgerald was driven around in circles in a separate vehicle for a terrifying few hours before being released. Of Shergar, nothing has since been seen. The days immediately following the taking of Shergar were both frantic and farcical. First, the kidnappers summoned a delegation of racing journalists to Belfast. All they had to go on was the anonymous caller's promise that he would contact them in a Belfast hotel. But within minutes of checking in, the drama took on a new turn. Thompson received a phone call in the hotel lobby. Um, how, how far is that from Dublin? Yeah, uh, from uh, Belfast. 30 miles. Right. And who am I talking to, by the way? Already and indeed since, the answer to that question was widely assumed. And some years later, Sean O'Callaghan, a former IRA member, stated that it was indeed the IRA who had taken the horse. This avenue of negotiation duly went nowhere, nor did another in which Shergar's vet, Stan Cosgrove, was instructed to report to a Dublin hotel and ask for messages assigned to the codename Johnny Logan. I've been waiting such a long time, looking out for you. Johnny Logan there with his 1980 Eurovision Song Contest winner What's Another Year. He'd win again in 1987 and write the runner-up entry in 1984 and the winner in 1992, making him verily the Shergar of pop. And this was not to be the last unlikely crossover between Shergar's story and subpar modern song. Shergar's trail ran cold, despite the best efforts of the platoons of psychics, diviners, dowsers, clairvoyants and similar hucksters who traditionally descend upon such mysteries, and the thrashing in the dark of the unabashedly bamboozled Irish police. Trilby-wearing Chief Superintendent James Murphy became a much-enjoyed, semi-deliberate comic turn. Have you got any leads at all now? Any, are you any further ahead than you were yesterday? I regret to say that I'm not. <laughs> 
In the years since Shergar vanished, it has become widely accepted that the horse was killed fairly shortly after being taken from Ballymoney, either because he had been injured during the kidnap and or because the plan to hold him for ransom had just gone generally askew. Perversely, Shergar's name is better remembered than those of most human victims of Ireland's troubles, testament to both the strangeness of the story and perhaps our difficulty with properly confronting the cruelty of people to each other. Shergar's immortality is somewhat twin-track. He is recalled as both a tremendous racehorse and deployed as the punchline in any number of morbid jokes. The British newspaper The Sunday Sport, whose journalism is rarely cited in encyclopedias, claimed Shergar had been spotted being ridden by the vanished peer Lord Lucan. The sport website of Ireland's national broadcaster, RTE, for a while decorated its 404 page not found error message with a picture of Shergar. Let's kick it! Possibly most curiously of all, when the BBC returned to Shergar's story as recently as 2021, they lit upon as narrator the bad-in-the-90s rapper Vanilla Ice, despite this making no more or less sense than asking MC Hammer to present a documentary about the IRA's murder of the Earl Mountbatten, and perhaps we should stop here lest we give anyone ideas. Although possibly Ice empathised with Shergar's trajectory of sudden astonishing success, followed by disappearance without trace. Sadly, Ice did not relay Shergar's tale in rap, despite stop, collaborate and listen, Ice is looking for a horse which is missing, being right there. IRA took a hold of his bridle, led him away with intentions homicidal. Will we ever find him? I don't know. Maybe start by digging under this hedgerow. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Oscar Huadiola Rivera. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listener.